I think literature's capacity to do that is interesting. For us to be able to meet ourselves, not the idealized version of ourselves that we present to ourselves and to others, but actually mm. the messy truths of ourselves, our moral ambivalence. And yes. so that has force, I think. The whole business of being human is the knowledge required to encounter human beings, which is what doctors certainly require, is provided for only partly by scientific expertise. Hey listeners, welcome back to the Doctors Who Create podcast, where we sit down with creative, passionate physicians and try to give you a glimpse into the ways they think in hopes that we can all start to see medicine as not just a scientific, but also a creative field. Today's podcast takes us across the pond to the UK. When I first moved to London in August, I was worried I wouldn't find a creative medical community similar to the one at Doctors Who Create, but after some research and steps out of my comfort zone, I'm very glad to see that one exists here. And who better to introduce us to it than Dr. Sam Guglani, writer, poet, and oncologist here in the UK. Sam is also the director and founder of Medicine Unboxed, which is a conference for health professionals and the public to use the arts and humanities to explore medicine, life, and death. I first met Sam at a talk he did at King's College London a couple months ago entitled Bodies, Medicine, and Imagination. Drawing on examples of poetry and literature, Sam wrestled with topics like encountering death in medicine, training our imaginations to blur the line between ourselves and others, and continuing to re-enchant those in the medical field who already noticed the value of the humanities and the arts. I was hooked. I knew I had to have him on the podcast for a conversation. So without further ado, here's Sam Guglani. So why don't you start by telling me about uh, which came first, the poet, writer, or doctor-to-be? Um, which came first... I think they were synchronous, really. They felt like they emerged at around the same time. I, mm. But I, I don't, I mean, I do, who knows? I mean, I, it's really hard, isn't it, to see where yeah, where, right, that, right. where those points of inception are. But I, I guess I grew right. up with the idea that I was going to be a doctor, and some of that was culturally inherited rather than forced, but certainly um, galvanised by my family. But at the same time, my dad was always really supportive of any kind of creative more than supportive, encouraging mm. of any kind of creative expression. And that was a big part of our conversation with me um, growing up, you know, with him was, was creativity and writing and art. Right. Really central. Were yeah. either of your parents doctors? No, no, they weren't. Oh, okay, My dad okay. was a, um, an occupational therapist in Delhi and did carried on with that for a bit when he came to the UK in the late 60s. <clears throat> but oh, not a medic. Okay. Got it. I guess in asking that, I was just wondering if if it was your kind of medical background or medical training that led you to the poetry and writing, or or was that something that you also grew up doing kind of concurrently? Yeah, I think it came. It, yes, exactly. It didn't. It didn't start after medicine. I remember. Okay. okay. I, rem- I mean, as a as a schoolboy, I was quite kind of academically square, I guess, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
doing well in my my science is quite important to me but the, even now if i think back it, the things that were a sort of place of solace and meaning yeah uh, growing up was definitely in writing stories and essays and doing my art homework those were the things that really felt like a cave that i could retreat into and feel okay in i didn't read much there it's interesting i only i read i remember reading starting to read i was late with reading i used to read a lot of comic books growing up and then i remember reading a great book called tom's midnight garden when i was about 11 Mm. and then being caught by that into a lot of fantasy and science fiction in my teens yeah, and yeah, started yeah. to read a lot of poetry around 15. I, I remember reading T.S. Eliot's Wasteland when I was 15 and being completely blown away by it. And then later on, the four quartets. So I guess things emerged. And then do you think that's what led you to kind of find this role of, since you were so enthralled by literature, that's what kind of led you to find the role of the humanities and the arts in medicine? Well, it, I mean, I guess so. It, partly, I mean, as a medical student, I used to head up the drama society at college and put on plays. And it, it always felt like a really interesting way of asking, or necessary way of asking questions about the world in parallel with the way, the, you know, the scientific method, I guess. There was always a deep satisfaction in watching or reading something and finding yourself consciously or not untangling a problem about the world or a question you had about it but the question the medicine unbox project came very much from i did a master's in ethics mm. and it just struck me that although we might know what to do technically um medically scientifically for a patient although we might also know how well to reason how to reason our way around it very well it still left the question very open around how one finds the right language to communicate with another human being who will be a patient, how the whole business of how one navigates that therapeutic encounter and what values and biases and prejudices medicine and society and patients and doctors Mm. seem to hold all the time. All those sorts of questions seemed left untouched really by ethics so i suppose i suppose the medicine unbox stemmed from trying to think about what sorts of lenses or um, approaches we might bring to that whole question of what we value in medicine what things mean Mm. and what we mean by good care why the whole encounter with mortality is so problematic and it seemed to me that the arts at least but much more widely than that, the whole business of philosophy, spirituality, politics, right, right, all these other disciplines seem to me to have quite a lot to say about those questions. The factors beyond the science. Well, yeah, yeah. and that they are as important. I mean, I right, think good right. science is a necessary condition for practicing medicine, but I think we over-egg it a little bit. I mean, maybe that's a controversial thing to say, <laughs> but it feels important, but it, in many ways... So is all the other stuff. And the other stuff seems to be constantly demoted to me and slightly brushed aside as frilly or irrelevant Mm. or soft, whereas it doesn't feel like that. It feels fundamental. Right. Especially in this hyper-tech age, I guess. Yeah, I mean, the hyper-tech age does two things, I think. One, it produces ever more moral challenge around what we ought to do, but it also 
it also presents the illusion, I think, that all things are knowable and fixable, whereas they're not. Right, and certainly true. not perpetually fixable. And so having to contend with our own perpetual vulnerability to, you know, the challenges of the universe and uncertainty isn't necessarily catered for by an ever-tech medical culture. Prodding kind of the role of the humanities fully in medicine. I remember um, attending your talk last month at King's where you mentioned that you don't love them being called the medical humanities. So why why is that? Well, because they're not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the short answer. <laughs> I mean, they're not they're not the medical humanities. Right. They're they're the humanities, and stating them as the medical humanities stops us from being able to orientate ourselves well to them. That it feels as if it's a position of mastery, whereas it should be a position of mm, sort of awe. Right. I think. Or, or almost that I just realized maybe taking ownership of them is just adding on to this idea that we can come to know everything and everything is, you know, easily positivist and can be boiled down to a science, whereas they yeah, are their perhaps. own entity. Yeah. 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 And I think one place, at least I can see, in which medicine glaringly lacks is in having uh, conversations about something like end-of-life care. And so why do you think it's so hard for us to have these conversations and do you think you've gotten better at it through your career as an oncologist? Um, well, I'll answer those in reverse order. I don't feel any, I mean, I, I get it wrong and do it badly mm. every day, not for want of trying, but I think it's fundamentally probably one of the central questions of contemporary medicine. I think it's it's upsetting and the content is sorrowful and all of us as human beings want to retreat from that kind of sorrowful territory. There's the T.S. Eliot quote, humankind cannot bear very much reality. And that's said with good reason because mm. very often it's painful. And, you know, who wants to who wants to dwell in a painful arena? But I don't think it's just that. Mm -hmm. And I don't think... Not only is it not just that, I don't think that's adequate reason for retreat because the job and the profession demands that we encounter pain and meet it well and act responsibly and professionally. But I think also there's something about accepting the fact of human mortality as being seen as anti-progress and nihilistic, which is not the kind of acceptance medicine's comfortable with. And I as well as that, I do think there is a sense where, coming back to your comment about progress, I think if, mm -hmm. if, if we live in a world where everything is increasingly fixable, then the omission of or withdrawal of active interventions to prolong life can become perceived as culpable, either by the practitioner or indeed by a recipient of care, certainly in more legislative cultures. Right. You might be more familiar with that than me. So I think those things, feeling nihilism, mm -hmm. um, retreating from pain, and feeling culpable kind of converge into a bit of a perfect storm of us not wanting to talk about death and mortality. During your talk, I remember you talking about how there's 
I, I don't know if you mentioned it through a quote or it was your own thought that being a physician might be the only profession in which you're able to interact with or meet the most amount of people. And that it was really a T.S. Eliot quote, I think. Yeah. Was it yeah. about we read many books because we cannot know enough people? Yes, that was it. Yeah. So when T.S. Eliot says we read many books because we cannot know enough people, to me, he's saying that literature is a a vista, a sort of a repository of what it means to be human, mm. an atlas of what it means to be human, as much as an atlas of anatomy is relevant to my work. That is a similarly important atlas. You know, I will never know what it is to be Mrs. Jones in bed three, but I might know, remember, glean what it is to feel furious or lost or um, hopeful or disappointed. You know, the stuff of what happens when one is unwell. And through gleaning that and reminding myself of it and feeling it, I think it can compel my cognition, my ethics, my science towards better personhood and towards better medicine. At least it holds the it holds the possibility of that rather than the the certainty of it. I think I think as we continue to talk I'm learning how how much you kind of blur the line between the humanities and uh, arts and medicine and how they're not so much I mean, you can see one is informing the other, but you you really do see so much overlap that they they're kind of one entity at at many points in the medical encounter. And so I, I guess so. I think they're parallel. Yeah, they're they're yeah, parallel. They're right? definitely parallel. Right. Yeah. And I it reminds me. I read an interview of you online in which you described work and life kind of existing in a sort of continuum when you were yeah. asked about the balance between yes. the two. So so tell yeah. me. How you came to that realization? Well, I guess I'm always being told off. I mean, that that probably comes from a place of being a bit defensive, or at least that's my <laughs> that's my argue, that's my kind Reaction. of defense, Your Honor. Yeah. I don't I don't think it's okay to enter a profession like medicine with the primary intention of fear of burnout, I, or rather, that being the main concern feels like the wrong right, set of yeah. priorities. You know, there's. There are other jobs in the world, but, you know, I think if you come to this job, it is, and we ought to be able to state this more loudly, that we come to it, we ought to come to it. Uh, I can't see how else we can come to it other than through some understanding of its role as a service. And therefore, there will be some personal loss to that. And there ought to be. And the loss is the wrong loss is probably the wrong word for it because mm. within that within that whole give if you like there is real wonder and enchantment and reward and nourishment and self-discovery and creativity which is just precious mm, yeah. and meaningful i was just talking to a physician the other day and i mentioned how i've met so many doctors who say like, don't go down this path. You shouldn't do this. And he, he just said, every doctor who says that, probably if they had to do a redo, would do the same thing. And <laughs> you can only kind of say that retroactively, having gone down this path. And you may hate it at times, but you also love it so dearly. Yes. Yeah. So I think, that's, I think that's really true. Yes. And I guess this conversation on work-life balance is only important because 
I know the million things you spend your time doing, and one of which is founding and running the conference. Yeah, Medicine Unboxed. Medicine yeah. Unboxed, which you mentioned a little <laughs> bit earlier. So tell me how long that's existed and, and I guess what you've learned most from running it. Well, I mean, Medicine Unboxed is a project which has many faces and arms, but at heart, it's been a project of ambition, a kind of entity whereby we have worked to bring health professionals and the public into the same conversation alongside doctors, poets, writers, philosophers, musicians, theologians, performers, patients. So, you know, in a sense, he's sort of humanity unboxed. It's about trying to have conversations along the lines that we've been having this evening Mm -hmm. in terms of content, but to spark debate and for it to enchant and challenge the participants and so it's been running now for 10 years with about 300 people in the audience and gratifyingly it sells out every year and and it's steeped in the arts so you know it's punctuated by performance and music and recital the events have been themed mortality, belief, values, love, wonder, stories. I was just going to say, we try to do a similar thing with, with Doctors Who Create, which is yeah. what this podcast is for. And just, yes. I guess, yeah. I guess different in that yeah. spotlighting, the creative, yeah. innovative approaches in medicine. And, and yours more looks at, you know, the impact of the humanities and arts and how they imbibe yes. this field. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, same approach, having these conversations is, I think, essential too what we're trying to achieve in the field. So let's let's also move to talk about your novel, Histories, for a bit. So for our listeners, Histories is a novel written by Dr. Gugani, and I think it's best described as a tapestry of interwoven narratives, with each chapter being told from different medical team members' perspectives, which includes the, the porter, the nurse, the chaplain, the junior doctor, and a few oncologists the latter being the point of view that Dr. Gugani knows all too well, probably. Yep. Um, and ultimately, these stories intertwine sometimes head on to keep people alive and to keep the hospital running. So tell me a little bit about what the process of writing this book was like for you and and why you chose to embark on this journey. So Histories, Histories was started life as a um, collection of separate short stories, which then it became pretty clear, was circling around the same geographical and uh, emotional space. So connecting them in terms of narrative threads Mm -hmm. was both fun and interesting and felt necessary. And if anything, it feels like the kind of narrative that appeals to me rather than a sort of A to Z narrative, one that number of strands run synchronously and meet up at various points so you get a, a mosaic or, or as you say a tapestry uh, that feels true to life and the book isn't even told in linear time so much as moving back and forward over the course of a week writing's always been really fundamental to me as a way of it sounds terribly it sounds very sort of grand doesn't it or, or pretentious <laughs> to say as a way of interrogating the world but that's what it I suppose if you attach language to things that's what it sounds a bit forced right, but right. that's genuinely how it feels it feels like it's a way of trying to ask questions of the world and you and and the words tussle with the world so right. writing well writing, that's what language is right creating well, i guess yeah kind of it's, to describe it's, yeah, the world around us it's understanding the world it's naming right. the world it's probably even shaping the world thank you so much for your time dr gugani and thanks for sitting down with me all right shiv take care 
It's like Dr. Guglani says, take care in your medical practice, whether it's informed by the humanities, the arts, design, or all of the above. Lastly, thank you all for listening. Hosting and editing for this podcast was done by me, Shiv Nadkarni. Music for this podcast was brought to you by the band Night Float and YouTube's audio library. If you have any thoughts or comments on this episode or any future episodes, please tweet us at Doctors Create. And please share it with your people if you like the work we're doing. I'll talk to you guys soon.